I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Canadian citizen who is already sentenced to 15 years in drug trafficking charges in China was suddenly dragged out of prison, retried, and sentenced to death after just a one-day uh, hearing. Concern to us as a government, as it should be to all our international friends and allies, that China has chosen to begin to uh, arbitrarily apply uh, death penalty in cases. I think the Canadian government does need to remind its citizens never to engage in Two drug Canadian smuggling. Two Canadian citizens have been detained by China in the aftermath of Canada's arrest of Meng Wanzhou. Former diplomat Michael Kovrig and business consultant Michael Well, in Spavel. the words of a former Canadian ambassador to China, quote, In China there are no coincidences. If they want to send you a message, they'll send you a message. We are in a bad way with China. The Americans asked us to detain... Chinese tech executive and beloved daughter of the People's Republic, Meng Wanzhou. We probably should have fucked that up on purpose. We didn't. And now we're kind of fucked. Chinese ambassador to Canada, Lu She, has accused us of stabbing our friend China in the back. Those are the words he used. They've been retaliating with increasingly frightening anti-Canadian stuff, arresting expat Canadians and charging them with trumped up accusations of endangering national security. China has a 99% conviction rate. These guys are probably headed to jail. They had already convicted Canadian Robert Schellenberg, perhaps legitimately, on drug trafficking charges before all of this happened. They sentenced him to 15 years. But then, after this happened, they quickly hauled him back into court for a one-day retrial and sentenced him to death. We took one of theirs. They're going to kill one of ours. This is scary. Canada updated our travel advisory to China, warning Canadians not to go there due to a risk of arbitrary enforcement of local laws. It's hard to know where this is all going, or how bad it's going to get. We're not really in a position to barter with them on Meng, and they don't really have much reason to ease up on us. We're not of much significance to China, but they are pretty significant to us. There are 1.76 million Canadians of Chinese descent who now have to think twice about going to visit their relatives. And we do an enormous amount of business with China. About 6% of our total global trade is with China. But, like, imagine if you had a business trip to Beijing scheduled for next week. How are you feeling about that? All of this uncertainty 
is compounded. It's not just that we don't know where this is all headed. We also don't really know what we're dealing with. Media coverage of China in Canada has been pretty sparse. Our foreign bureaus have been hit hard. And we still rely on a handful of old narratives that are increasingly proving to be faulty. China as a mere source of cheap labor and substandard goods. China as a human rights suppressing dictatorship that will inevitably face a popular uprising when the money stops flowing and the middle class wakes up. China as a bootlegging copycat pirate economy where censorship and surveillance will ultimately limit technological innovation. We fall back on those tropes because we don't have much original reporting. And the reporting that we do have from China is complicated. I mean, what's it like to represent the Western free press in a country that doesn't have or respect one? In a surveillance state where you are certainly being watched and where your very ability to exist there on a journalist's visa can be revoked by the government at any time. And in a country that cares very much about how it looks internationally and that has limitless resources to spin you. My guest today knows exactly what that's like. Joanna Chu was a Beijing correspondent for Agence France Presse, the AFP. She also worked for the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. Now she's back home in Canada, where she is the deputy bureau chief for the Star Vancouver. And when I reached her, she was right in the middle of breaking the story of liberal candidate, now former liberal candidate, Karen Wang, and her spectacular flameout against Jagmeet Singh in the race to represent Burnaby South. She's going to tell me about that as it was happening, and she's going to talk about everything else. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by David Ma, Addison Babcock, Emily Hawes, Sally Freeman, John Spence, Melanie LeBlanc, Philip Rudds, and Christy Alesco. Hi, I'm Christy Alesco, a registered massage therapist from Victoria, B.C. I support Canada Land because learning about the conventions and conflicts in journalism makes news a lot more interesting. And I like you, Jesse, because you acknowledge when you talk about Toronto too much. Hi, Joanna. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being on. I, this is just like, first of all, we're involved in this uh, increasingly scary dispute, Canada mm-hmm. and China. And then I'm catching you, you and your news team at Star Metro uh, are on this uh, Karen Wang story today. Who knows where it'll be on Monday when people are hearing this, mm-hmm. but you were the guys who figured out that she had been talking on Chinese WeChat and uh, identified herself as the Chinese candidate and, J- and Jagmeet Singh as one of Indian origins. And then she pulled out and now she's, I know that this story is moving as we speak. So uh, yeah. So who knows what will happen by the time this airs. But yeah, I think it's partly because our newsroom is one third people of the Chinese diaspora. Um, I was born in Hong Kong. Others have been born in Hong Kong, Taiwan, mainland China. So we already are attuned to following Chinese language media. It's a great way to get news tips. And we did not foresee that she would resign and then try to withdraw her resignation and the liberals saying no. No, thank you. <laughs> you can stay yeah. away now. <laughs> yeah, no, it's quite something. How did you find that? I mean, I know that you were the one who translated that from, from WeChat. Mm-hmm. So, like, how did you even come across that in the first place? We monitor WeChat, um, but actually in this case, uh, a source was like, oh, did you see this? And we were like, oh, no, we will look into it. And then we saw that on the weekend and we got reactions and ended up doing the story. 
So let me ask you about that, because there's sort of kind of like one way that the Canadian English media is sort of talking about this growing conflict with China, and you can kind of get one sense of things. Yeah. But then we have a large uh, population in Canada of, of Chinese ethnic origin, and you've got like all this Chinese language media in Canada, and then you've got Chinese WeChat. Are we hearing the same things about China? Mm-hmm. Are the attitudes the same when you monitor that, or are you getting different stuff? Yeah. I grew up in Vancouver being really intimately familiar with Chinese language media in Canada. My dad works for a Chinese language radio station. There's a lot of Canadian media that publishes and airs in the Chinese language. That often doesn't have anything to do with the Chinese government. It's just there's so many people of Chinese origin in North America that the media scene here is huge. And a lot of the English language reporters have no idea that there's such a diversity of Chinese language media in Canada, big, big companies that are mostly editorially independent. There has been some pressure in recent years, but pretty much are separate from China. What's changing is that there's been so many newer uh, immigrants, and including from mainland China, whereas in the past it was a lot of immigrants from Hong Kong and Taiwan. People from mainland China are used to their own media sources, and a lot of their media sources, regardless of where it's from, they get it filtered through WeChat. And WeChat, as we've reported, is a Chinese company based in China, so it's subject to censorship from the Chinese government, and we call it the Great Firewall of China. It's heavily censored, so oftentimes a lot of sensitive news doesn't even appear on the app. It gets automatically deleted, so people never see it. So when these people rely on their favorite app, um, it's like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram all rolled into one, they're going to get a different view of things. They're not going to get the full picture on sensitive stories, such as the Huawei Meng Wanzhou story. A lot of that was censored on WeChat. I mean, that's fascinating. That's like the Great Firewall is active in mm-hmm. Canada, right? Like yeah. you're kind of porting it over. You, you mentioned as well that um, the Chinese language press in Canada is more or less independent. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I had a guy named Jonathan Fawn on the show a couple of years ago, and uh he was telling me that that might not always be so. There's a story where Helen Wang was fired from her editorship at the Chinese Canadian Post after she published a piece by Jonathan that was critical of the CPC. There's other instances where the idea that Beijing has influence in the Canadian Chinese press has come up. Either you're on WeChat and you're firewalled or you're reading Canadian Chinese press independent or not so much? I don't know. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's like a mix because I lived in Hong Kong and I think Hong Kong is a good case study for how we should understand how Chinese language press works in Canada. So Hong Kong is independent from Beijing, from mainland China. It's supposed to have a free press. There's no laws for censorship or anything in Hong Kong. But we do find that there's a big variation in how Hong Kong media reports on sensitive stories. And that's not necessarily to do with legal issues. Um, legal pressure, it's to do with economic pressures. So a lot of Hong Kong business people have business interests in China, so they don't want their journalists in some cases to um, wade into tricky waters and piss off Beijing too much. And we see all the way here in Canada, there's these dynamics too, where sometimes a lot of the owners of the Chinese language media that is Canadian, completely Canadian, they also have businesses that have to do with trade with China or some kind of offices in China. So there may be some economic reasons why some things don't run. In other cases, when it's more 
people who have really strong family ties to mainland China to have aunts and uncles, children, siblings in China. It might be that they're worried about the safety of their family if they do a sensitive story. And I spoke with an independent Chinese journalist who was from Beijing. He was a really good journalist in Beijing, and now he's in Canada. His pen name is Huang Hebian. And he said that he's one of the most um, unique people in that he's not afraid to talk bluntly about what's happening in China and how it affects Canada. Because he noted that, that among his compatriots who are recent, more recent immigrants, there are a lot, there's a lot of fear. We see news about China arresting Canadians. We see news about China arresting human rights lawyers. That stuff is very immediate, and it makes people, even immigrants, really scared. Yeah, I, I mean, China is very large, and there's like all kinds of different divisions, one of which that you've identified being uh, people whose family origins go back to Hong Kong versus mainland. And I guess what I'm trying to get my head around is you're pointing out that like people obviously have fear for their family members still there or they have business interests. But there's also there's also just legitimate support for the CPC amongst Canadians. Uh, and, and there's also cultural like we did a story on how this this blog in Vancouver, Vancouver is awesome, has been selling f- free Meng T-shirts. Right. Yeah. And, and the, you know, polls show that the majority of Canadians think that Canada acted properly in arresting Meng. But but I wonder, like, how indicative of the, is that of the sentiment in B.C.? On the ground in Vancouver, because her case, her bail hearing was in the B.C. Supreme Court in Vancouver, um, people were expecting, oh, maybe there'll be a lot of protests um, in support of Hmong, but they were pretty small. And we monitored social media, as we do, and there's not that much, there's not a large volume of people speaking out in support of her, at least in B.C. Part of it could be due to people... I think a general sentiment among, again, recent immigrants is that they want to keep out of politics. They're worried. They want to keep their heads down. They want to not get involved. And that's a habit you you pick up from living in China. It's really easy to get thrown in jail in China if you speak out, if you write an open letter, even if you write a social media post. You talk about what, uh, how easy it is to face censure if you speak out in, in China. I mean, you're speaking from personal experience, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I'm like, again, I was born in Hong Kong. My family immigrated here and then moved to Vancouver when I was two. But, you know, by all appearances, I look Chinese. So, living in China, working as a journalist there, often I was treated like a Chinese person. And that's really terrifying, to be frank. I would try to cover some court cases and plainclothes police not showing a badge or anything, would push me away, would surround me and shout at me and try to figure out who I am and try to kick me away. Um, it's even worse if you're a journalist with a camera because they will grab it, smash it, hack it. Like They will just not respect a journalist's right to work. And that's how they treat people who look foreign. So you can just imagine how they treat people who are Chinese. I got only the smallest taste of it reporting uh, in, in part of my pronunciation uh, in Guangzhou on a journalist visa uh, and, and interviewing a dissident um, blogger oh, about, wow. about 10 years ago. And we were followed the whole way through by police. And the feeling just for the couple of days that I was there was just like, I am representing the free press in a country that doesn't have one and doesn't respect one. I can't imagine what it must have been like for you and for all of the journalists, the foreign correspondents in mainland China who live and build lives. Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit more about what that's like. I think that things have gotten so bad in China that we're seeing it play out internationally. In the past, there were always human rights abuses, but people in other countries like Canada, Australia would speak out against it on behalf of Chinese people in China. But now it's getting so bad that China's acting against foreigners. Michael Kovrig, one of the Canadians, a former diplomat who was arrested um, in seeming retaliation for 
Canada detaining Meng Wanzhou. Mm-hmm. He he's my friend, um, and it's just really kind of sickening to the core that this is getting so bad that China doesn't act like it cares about international image, that they will seemingly detain Canadians foreigners arbitrarily, and. Recently, um, you reached out to me because you saw that there was a death sentence handed down to a Canadian citizen in China. That also the timing seems very political, so it's just very dystopian. And to address your question, what it's like living there? Well, first of all, like imagine if you have to use a really dodgy VPN connection just to email your parents or to use WhatsApp or to go on Facebook. <laughs> it's a very Closed environment where if you don't have a VPN that works, you are really cut off from、um, information about the world. But what's really astounding is that despite all that, even if you can face jail for just writing an open letter with some、uh, suggestions for the government, and you will be thrown in jail, there's so many Chinese people who are still trying to make positive change, and they're still trying to express themselves, and they're still trying to work collaboratively with the government to make some positive changes. So. It was very interesting for me to, and humbling for me to meet and get to know a lot of these people. People like writers, activists, lawyers. They still have hope, and a lot of them are lying low right now. It's a really tense time. A lot of them are deciding to be quiet right now because they're scared, but they still are having these private conversations where they're really critical of the government and the way it's going. You may have seen news that Xi Jinping、uh, last year he said that he has the right to rule. Indefinitely, so people have been calling it like now he's the emperor. He has mandate to rule for a life because the Chinese Communist Party voted to grant him that. So the fear now is that things have gotten so bad under him, and now that there's no、um, end in sight to his leadership, that things would just keep getting down this line where civil society is just shrinking and shrinking. Things are very dark. It's kind of opening up our eyes to things that you have been chronicling for a long time. You wrote about、uh, Chinese censorship. For for pen and、uh, some of the laws, like it's codified into law, what what you cannot do on social media. Some of these things that you brought my attention to were pretty alarming. Could you point out a couple that you found to be the most stringent or, or surprising? Yeah, so Pen America,、um, it's a organization of writers that do research partly on press freedom issues, freedom of expression issues. So I was commissioned to do like a hundred page report. Um, last year about social media censorship and how artists and writers deal with this, and、um, I already was aware of, of a lot of this. But a pattern that emerges that in the past things were more like China would install hardware, like I said, the Great Firewall that automatically censors things. That was for a long time how things were censored, and in the recent years, the censorship regime is more about punishing people. Punishing companies first off, so、um, social media companies in China are very entrepreneurial, very interesting, very dynamic. But they have to abide by these really like unreasonable censorship standards. I spoke with people anonymously who work for Chinese social media companies, and they said that their offices get lists sometimes every week, sometimes it changes every day on what the company is responsible for censoring every day. So one day. The name Kim Jong Un, you need to scrub from your platform. The next day, it's okay. So、mm-hmm. it's very hard for them to keep up. And also, China has put laws that affect internet users. Chinese people like love talking. They're really good at 
promoting themselves on social media. People get really, really famous. And you can imagine with such a large population, if you're popular, you're going to get really popular. You're going to get a million followers a minute kind of thing. But they put a curtail on these people by punishing you disproportionately if you get attention for things you say. So say Twitter, um, which in China is called Weibo, the version is Sina Weibo. If you tweet something that's basically retweeted 500 times and it's seen 5,000 times, then you can get up to three years in prison. Remember that if you get charged, 99.99% of the time you're guilty. So you won't, there's not much of a hope that, oh, maybe it'll be a misunderstanding that you can argue in court. And many people have landed in jail. That's shocking. And, and I also read in your report that there was an attempt to ban homosexual content from yeah. Weibo. Yeah, I mean, and also it goes against what you would think that China has committed to different United Nations human rights treaties. The LGBT case in China is quite interesting because Chinese society is getting more and more tolerant towards homosexuality. And actually, there was such a public outcry to this move by Weibo to block all homosexual LGBT content that they reversed their decision. That's interesting. So there is some place for civil society, for pushback, for protest. I mean, this was what I noticed when I was covering the emerging technological scene in China 10 years ago, is that it sort of belied your usual concept of a totalitarian or a tyrannical society in that the people could speak and that the legitimacy of government was, and the way that there was almost like a democratic impulse was, if enough people protested online or even in person, then the government would sort of would adapt and amend. Uh, it, it wasn't just stamping out all dissent. You know what, Joanna, let me ask you this. I mean, I, I don't I don't agree with this, but there was another point of view that more than a couple people presented to me when I was when I was in China, which was that like there's something chauvinistic about asserting that the same types of freedom of expression that is so important to me must be present in China. And there was something chauvinistic about this idea that like, oh, they're trying to control the internet. That's impossible. The internet is uncontrollable. This firewall won't work. We were wrong. They were able to control their internet and have this, what they, what they call digital sovereignty and still remain technologically competitive. And even more than that, I had people saying to me, stop asserting to me that I need to have your freedoms. I am two or three times as wealthy as my parents. Can you say the same thing? I don't need to go and talk about Tiananmen Square on the internet. Mm -hmm. My life is better. What do you think about all that? Um, my colleague, Jeremy Nuttall, who's also a really China hand expert here, he was also in China around that time. And he said it was like probably the best time to live in China in recent memory. Beijing wanted to have a more open face to the world. They wanted to join the WTO. They wanted the Olympics and do a good job at like a coming out party. And they were kind of saying better things and not cracking down so much. The leadership was different. It wasn't Xi Jinping. Um, but since Xi Jinping came into power um, five, six years ago, things have been different to the point where, like I said, like there's been so many, many incremental regulations that limit what people can say online and limit the work of tech companies that are trying to do a good job. So I've noticed that in just the last couple of years, talking to just everyday Chinese people, that they're getting more and more pissed off. Whereas before they were more like, oh, foreigners are always um, exaggerating what's going on here. In private conversations, I would be hard-pressed to find someone, um, especially in the capital, where things are more tense, who doesn't think that there is 
an issue and that Chinese people are facing more and more limits to their freedoms. But again, people are scared. You're not going to see it. Um, they might not even speak to you because you're a Canadian. Sure. Um, they're scared. Because I'm a um, white guy, right? Like it's. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think they spoke with me more because I looked Chinese. So they kind of trusted me more, maybe. I checked in with some of my um, colleagues who, and they said, yeah, it's harder because they don't want to lose face. They don't want to seem like their country is doing so badly that the average person is scared, even if that's often the case. On the other hand, there are people who made a decision to not get involved in anything political, to just put their heads down and focus on their own lives, making money, doing the best for their families. Often these are the people who have enough money to consider immigrating overseas. So that's also interesting that like they're kind of voting with their feet. They want to have a, a life overseas and they don't feel that it's a good place for their children to grow up at this point. Why did you want to work there? Why did you want to report from China? <laughs> well, I think... Journalists kind of seem to make irrational choices of going to places where um, (laughs) there's uh, difficulties. But I think it was a pretty personal thing for me because when I was younger, going to school in, you know, boring Canadian suburb, that um, things were like so easy and so nice and so beautiful. But I was starting to read all these reports that were coming out in the 90s about orphan girls in China getting dumped into wells and ditches and abandoned because of the one-child policy and human rights issues in China. And it was really baffling for me. Like, how did I end up in Canada (laughs) as a Chinese person? So it really affected me at a really young age. And I just kept doing more research and kept trying to find out what I could, and when I went to UBC here at uh, university, I took really great Chinese history classes and got really, really interested in all China has gone through, from colonialism to wars to um, cultural revolution, where families are pitted against each other, um, the communist revolution. So it was so fascinating, and I wanted to act as a bridge, because I know that Chinese people culturally tend to be really reserved and closed and not want to talk to outsiders. I thought I could act as a bridge being of Chinese origin to try to tell the stories. And that's what I've been trying to do. And actually, living in China, often my work itself is very, very depressing and often scary. But daily life is also quite fun. Like, bars are open really late. You can just walk the streets. You can have a beer. You can um, just have adventures. And, and once you get to know people and speak Mandarin, like, people are so friendly and funny. The sense of humor of the average mainland Chinese person, I think it's just, like, one of the best in the world so a lot of people don't know that people are goofy people make the wordplay and puns like everyone's like very clever and sharp and satirical you wouldn't realize until you improve your mandarin as i had to because my mother tongue is cantonese that people are very snarky and funny and i imagine they have to find ways to be clever and ironic that are a bit uh subtle right yeah yeah so like like i said my report on social media people use homonyms yeah. Um, and they use memes. Like the memes are just, an example is, you know, Peppa the Pig? Yes, I do. Yes, Peppa <laughs> the Pig is a symbol of subversion and like hip hop badass culture in China. What? Yes. And I have not wrapped my idea around why, but I think they just chose like this completely innocuous um, and popular cartoon that was already really popular in China and made it into like a symbol of rebellion. Because it's a, you can't, censor Peppa the Pig because everyone there loves Peppa the Pig. (laughs) I mean, you're talking about the culture of people who live there. You've Mm -hmm. also written about the culture of journalists, of the foreign Mm -hmm. correspondents. 
And just to take us in a different direction, I'm just really yeah. curious about what it's like to live amongst the kind of press club culture, foreign correspondent culture. <laughs> you wrote a piece for Foreign Policy. Here's the headline. Sexpat journalists are ruining Asia coverage. And I'm going to read you something from that piece that you wrote, and, and it's going to require some explanation from you. So here, here's, here's a passage from that. Somewhere deep in the Chinese surveillance apparatus, there is a startling collection of images of journalists' genitalia. I think our listeners are going to need some explanation as to what that's all about. <laughs> so um, it was in the um, middle of Me Too issues and Me Too also blowing up in China and among Chinese people. I noticed this a pattern personally, as well as talking to women journalists and women in Asia, not just in China, that sometimes the behavior of foreign men abroad is really bad and worse than it seems that how these men would behave if they were back home in Canada or the US or Australia, for example. To the point where I collected stories from women and that were really shocking. Like personally, I myself, just to explain the genitalia thing, that dick pics were very common. <laughs> and people, I thought it was hilarious that people were sending them over WeChat, which we know is heavily, heavily surveilled by the Chinese state, especially journalist WeChat accounts. I mean, that's something that you hear women talk about all the time, but you're, you're saying that they receive them from colleagues, from people whose names they knew. Like yeah. The, people, I mean, it can't be the biggest community in any city. It's not an insignificant thing, the fact that it's being surveyed, because if the government has compromising material on a journalist, that's kind of relevant, right? I think people, when they go overseas, some people, a minority of men, think of it as kind of like a playground. I feel like there's almost like a U-curve in that living in Asia and getting sometimes in some places attention from locals for being, you know, a tall white person who looks good in a suit or something. It could get to your head and then things seem kind of freewheeling and there's existing and really widespread um, stereotypes about Asian women, the Asian fetishes, if you will, that we're exotic, submissive and will put up with your shit. And I wrote about it with a focus on journalism because it's especially problematic in journalism because often some countries will only have one person, one correspondent in this country. And they're responsible for really shaping like the global understanding of different countries. So if they're treating women this way, what does that mean about them? And what does it mean about what's happening in their coverage when they're writing about uh, gender issues, for example? So it's happened to me, it's happened to my friends. The former president of the Foreign Correspondents Club in China was accused of sexually assaulting a fellow journalist and a female friend of his recently, and he had to step down, and he was fired from the LA Times. It's actually pretty terrifying the way that you describe it, these guys who, you know, they may have a young woman, like a local hired to be their translator or to work with them in some kind of lower capacity. They're, they're independent of the usual HR structure and management structure of their parent companies. There's no recourse for anyone. Like, it, it just seems, you know, and then you add to this, this cultural idea of like, you know, our man in Beijing, an international man of mystery and the way may, maybe those posts attract guys who want to go live a certain way, or maybe they become that way for all the reasons you're describing. But yeah, to be a colleague and an Asian woman did, did not sound like it was so fun as, as, as you laid it out. <laughs> yeah, like, I feel like I've gone through a lot <laughs> going overseas, and I'm a bit jumpy back in Canada, but where people are nicer. I mean, people are operating under high stress and a lot of expectations, and they misbehave, and it could range from things that are more harassment, hitting on your news assistant, uh, for example, 
or it could go to the level of sexual assault. And I've heard some really terrifying stories where someone is on assignment with another journalist and they are attacked. And at the whole time I was writing it, I was like second guessing myself. Am I making more of it than it is? Am I talking to all these people? But you know, a trend is merging because I'm looking for it. But when I published it, it became viral um, internationally overnight almost, actually within a couple hours. And people all over the world reach out to me saying the whole thing with sex pets is a thing. Oh, it's a fascinating piece. Now you're back in Canada and you're covering a lot of the same issues from a different perspective. And you've got a team, you've got a diverse newsroom. You've got the language skills and the beat knowledge to assess Chinese uh, media in Canada and find things that everybody else is missing. I I guess you're a really good person for me to put this question to. I feel like we have misunderstood and we have covered China very badly and we have imposed a lot of our own shit onto China and a lot of our own standards and ideals. And I think it's put us in a really bad position where we are a tiny power. We've been dealt a pretty bad hand in being asked to detain Meng. We're now on the bad side of a superpower. Do we even have a chance through the coverage to understand what we're up against and to understand the way forward? Do we have a chance of understanding China given the journalism that we have? Yeah, I think you're right that China increasingly sees itself as a world power, maybe only second or equal to the U.S. at this point. And I see everyone else as middle powers or insignificant powers um, that they could have influence over. Um, and you can, you know, write, there has been like books and books written about how China is trying to get more um, influence and power and um, also respect uh, all over the world. But Aside from that, what's happening with Canada seeming to be in the middle of U.S. and China over this Huawei things and China seeming to lash out by detaining Canadians, sentencing Canadians to death. It's something that really I've noticed. I've been getting calls off the hook <laughs> by fellow Canadian uh, journalists who are saying, like, Joanna, mm-hmm. like you were just there in China. Like, can you like um, help us out here? Um, so in a way, I'm glad that people in Canada, Canadian media, is waking up to the fact that we need to understand China well and put it in context for people because it really, really affects Canada and Canadian citizens. But it's also sad that Canadian media has been shrinking and we've been um, withdrawing and our bureaus are our journalists from China because we need people there on the ground. And Globe and Mail is a competitor of Toronto Star, so it's a bit awkward for me to say this, but Nathan Vanderclip from the Globe and Mail is one of the best foreign correspondents in China. And he's Canadian. He's the only Canadian newspaper reporting there full time. So it's all on his shoulders to try to convey all of this on the ground now. That is a kind so, of a startling fact to consider, <laughs> given the story that's playing out. I mean, we've got one full time reporter from this entire country who is based in, in China. Yeah, as far as for newspaper, for broadcast, I'm not too sure. I think um, there may be a couple more, but on a part-time basis. But I know um, I was invited to the ambassador's residence, the Canadian ambassadors in China, to have little um, meet and greets with the Canadian media. And it was really sad because around the table, only a couple people actually worked for Canadian media. The rest of us Canadian journalists work for American, European, other media. Americans have a lot of people in China as correspondents. So I think Canada might need to rethink how we get news about China, how whether we should devote more resources to report on China. Would you ever go back for the star? Do you miss it? Uh, to be honest, I'm relieved to be out. Um, it was very depressing, as I laid out before, and also I got asthma from the pollution in Beijing. 
being in China, like literally was almost impossible for me because I was choking and it was waking up in the middle of the night, like not being able to breathe and grabbing my asthma inhaler. So it became pretty unfeasible for me to be there personally. Mm-hmm. And um, it's increasingly hard for newsrooms to hire good people who speak Chinese, who understand China, to report there. Because it's a hard place for families. It's a hard place to bring your kids more and more. Yet it's so important, and there's still a lot of people who are sacrificing and passionate about telling these stories. So I think we should support them, and we should support journalists in general. Um, a lot of Canadian media has trouble selling subscriptions, uh, getting people to pay something like five bucks a month for something for to support the journalism and ad sales. I'm sure you cover the media and your podcasts are aren't aren't gonna keep the media afloat in Canada anymore. So I think if the public wants to know more about Canada as well as Canada's place in the world and world affairs that we need to think about how we can support our free press. Yeah, I mean, we have trouble uh, putting correspondence uh, or keeping correspondence in China. We have trouble finding people who understand these issues and speak the language here. Like our newsrooms really lack the same type of capabilities and diversity that yours has. Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad to land um, this perfect job for me where people here, I'm surrounded by people who already understand China um, and who have uh, Chinese backgrounds, and that is unusual. And it is almost kind of embarrassing that we were able to sit on this WeChat post story from Karen Wang for a couple of days to do our good job on it when it was in, out in the public on her WeChat account for anyone to see. Can you tell us briefly about what New Voices is? So New Voices, um, I started it. You know, things have been tense in China. and But at the same time, Beijing is kind of like a grad school environment, like lots of nerdy people who want to do good in the world. So a few of us journalists, writers, translators, we started a group called New Voices, and new means female, so uh, women's voices, um, because we saw that a lot of the coverage was so heavily slanted toward the male perspective. And in pretty much every single piece about China, most of the experts were men. So we started by putting a directory, and now it's over 500 people of female uh, greater China experts. And this made a big splash, and like a lot of good publications use it now as a resource to make sure that there's more balance and different perspectives in their work. And we since expanded to promoting um, work of women on China, research, writing, art. We have a website, newvoices.com, and we're working on a print anthology so we can showcase this work. Because it's a problem in publishing, too, that a lot of them, the voices we get on China um, who get book deals are men, often older men, because agencies, publishers find them bankable as um, the stereotypical (laughs) China experts. So we want to make a difference there. And we think that um, young people's voices, women's voices is a good way to make sure that we get the full picture on what China is all about. I'll let you get back to your busy day. I guess one final question I want to ask you before uh, I do. How much worse could this conflict between China and Canada get, do you think? Um, I'll let you know, covering human rights very incrementally in China, that every time I was like, how how much worse can it be? Like, police are arresting a human rights lawyer in front of his house when he's holding his toddler son's hand. They bring SWAT teams to arrest a guy who wrote a letter to suggest some polite changes to how the politics runs in a more democratic manner. Liu Xiaobo, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, died in police custody, and he was the first Nobel Peace Prize winner to die in police custody since Nazi Germany. 
And that really hit home. And we, we were always wondering, how much worse can they get? How much more oppression of um, political prisoners is going to happen? But it always got worse in the last few years. So everyone I talked to is saying is like, it's just going to keep getting worse and worse. They don't see an end in sight. Everyone's biding their time. They're thinking that as long as Xi Jinping is in power, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Maybe he's dealing with a lot of political tensions. There's been rumors of a coup. Maybe there's stuff going on that, that explains why the Chinese government is acting like so paranoid and with such a strong hand in everything. But people don't see an end in sight. And people who are there, who are targets of um, government pressure, they're saying that they're just going to lie low because they don't see an end in sight. And now it's expanding to treatment of foreigners in China. So it's very serious and we have to find out as much as we can because I think knowledge is power. I think China has gotten by for a long time for foreigners not having the resources to really understand what's going on. So at the very least, we can try to figure out more what is going on. Joanna, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That is your Canada Land podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me about it, and I will read your email if you send it to jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Check it out. We are publishing new stories all the time. This week, there is a new episode of Commons out. Listen to the show, people. Commons is focused on corruption in Canada, and the stories are jaw-dropping. This episode is produced by Kasia Mihailovich. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication of Canada Land is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do here and you want to receive versions of all of our podcasts without advertisements, well, you can get them when you support us at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Please do. In France, in the 13th century, a teenager ascends the throne. He seems calm, collected, and as it happens, drop-dead gorgeous. But looks can be deceiving, and no one is ready for the death, destruction, and chaos that lie ahead. Step inside the reign of one of the Middle Ages' most cold-blooded rulers on This Is History presents The Iron King. Available wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>